Our current mm. overdoses in Canada, which have topped, you know, 21,000 in five years, are a completely predictable result of, of Canadian drug policy, which follows American policies on, on the war on drugs. So when you're asking how did we get here, we actually need to rewind about 100 years, actually. This is the Public Health Insight Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Gordon, and I'll be your host for this episode, along with Ben and a very special guest. Before we move on, it is important to note that the views expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent any of the organizations we work for or are affiliated with. Dr. Andrea Sarita is a family physician working at the London Intercommunity Health Centre, where she focuses her practice on people who use drugs, people living in homelessness, and women involved in the survival sex trade. Dr. Sarita provides care in a traditional office setting, but also through street outreach medicine, going to where people are at in shelters, encampments, or anything in between. She's an avid harm reductionist and is the lead physician for the London Intercommunity Health Centre Safe Opioid Supply Program, which is currently the longest running of its kind in Canada. Please join me in welcoming to the podcast, Dr. Andrea Sarita. Dr. Sarita, um, thanks for taking time out of your day uh, to join us to talk about several important issues smushed up into one. But we'd like to know a little bit more about you and the work that you're passionate about. Uh, so if you could start by telling us, you know, why you decided to pursue a career in emergency medicine and ultimately how you arrived where you are now. Absolutely. And thanks for having me, Gordon and Ben. So it, it's been a bit of a journey getting to, to the practice that I hold right now. So as you mentioned, I, I actually started my career in a combination of working in the emergency room and, you know, some family medicine work as well. My family medicine work has always encompassed marginalized populations. So I actually, coming out of med school, started to practice in one of our local uh, homeless shelters at, at the Centre of Hope here in London, Ontario. And I actually did that because of my little brother. So um, my brother Jason Sarita was working on, on a floor, essentially in a social work type of role. Um, and I needed a part-time job in med school. So <laughs> he, he told me about a few postings. I was hired and, and you know worked the overnight shift on, on the detox and the withdrawal floor and it really was my first exposure to people who use drugs people who are you know using street level substances people living in homelessness um, and the experience was pretty profound it, it really I think you know altered the trajectory of what I thought I would do with my career so again graduating from residency I had, I had always planned to do emerge um, but then actually added that family practice component um, did that for quite a few years you know I think six or seven years I was in emerge and then a really amazing opportunity came up at the London Intercommunity Health Centre. Um, so LIHC is involved in a really unique program called Street Level Women at Risk, um, which is a partnership between mm. Housing First organizations, medical and, and policing. Um, and, and the doctor who was involved in that, Dr. Ann Bodkin, was a mentor of mine. And, and at that point, she decided, you know, retirement was what she wanted. Um, and so that opportunity opened up for me and, and, and I leapt at it. And that's when I became to... Uh, you know, doing the full-time work with London Intercommunity Health and, and at the beginning really working again with women who were involved in street-level sex work and then people living in homelessness and, and, and the rest of the practice grew and I'm sure we're going to talk more about that. For sure. Thank you, Dr. Sarita. Um, could you share a bit more about the London Intercommunity Health Centre and your role as a day-to-day -day physician there? 
Absolutely. So um, London Inner Community Health Centre, we're a CHC, which is a community health centre. Um, CHCs are across the province of Ontario and actually across Canada. Um, and all CHCs, we have a mandate um, to care for people with barriers to care in the traditional health system. So. Our clinic itself, um, LIHC, serves about 8,000 patients in, in London, Ontario. Um, my, my corner of it is again, you know, we in the clinic called Health Outreach, and that's where we're, we're working primarily with people who live in homelessness. Um, but there's many other different groups of, of folks who are served in our clinic. So, so we do have a very large newcomer um, population in practice that serves at, at, in the community. Um, we see many undocumented folks. We see many people living in poverty um, and then many people um, who for whatever reason fall through the cracks in, in more traditional uh, family medicine offices. That's awesome. So that brings it full circle to one of the things I was um, curious about you identify as an uh, avid harm reductionist. So first of mm -hmm. all what what does that mean to you when you say avid harm reductionist? Yeah, so, so harm reduction, the, the term actually did originate in, in substance use and, you know, street level drug use. And it was looking um, to acknowledge that people who use drugs are able to have the autonomy to continue to do so in a way that, you know, serves their goals and their needs. But with drugs, just like many other things that we choose to do in life, there, there are risks and there are potential harms. So harm reduction accepts that individual's choice to use drugs, but seeks to, you know, provide tools um, and education and medical care that addresses any potential complications of it. The first harm reduction measure that we saw in Canada was actually uh, emerged out of the downtown east side in Vancouver in the 1980s when they were having the first HIV um, epidemic here in Canada. And that was a clean needle exchange program. And so that came actually out of the community of people who use drugs themselves, acknowledging um, that the, their drug use, you know, was related to the uh, acquiring HIV sometimes and then seeking measures to reduce that potential harm. And then everything else that we're doing with in, you know, substance use work follows that narrative as well. And I guess an avid harm reductionist just means that I, you know, I've drank the Kool-Aid and, and I'm all in. I'm two feet in. Awesome. So John Dewey is an uh, American philosopher. And one of the quotes that he said that always stands out for me is um, a problem well defined is a problem half solved. Uh, mm. So when we're speaking about the so-called uh, opioid overdose crisis or some say it's an epidemic um, how did we get to this point and is was there a singular root cause for how this all came together that is an absolutely enormous question Gordon that I could write I could write an essay on but <laughs> I, I mean I, I and actually this is this is something that I often try to correct in my media is you're correct we have to define the, the problem properly because I really believe like the language that we use to describe pro a problem really informs the solutions we can think of so there's there's kind of a couple of prongs to answer your question um, the first is like what are we really dealing with you you mentioned I think the overdose epidemic you also called it an opioid epidemic. I shift that a little bit um, and, and I refer to it as a drug poisoning epidemic, which we, we can delve further into, but also a drug policy epidemic. Um, our current overdoses in Canada, which have topped you know, 21,000 in five years, are a completely predictable result of, of Canadian drug policy, which follows American policies on, on the war on drugs. 
So when you're asking how do we get here, we actually need to rewind about a hundred years actually. So um, beginning with al alcohol prohibition and you know leading into Harry An Anslinger's actions uh, in America around you know marijuana and reefer madness and everything else. Um, but what we saw in the 1920s with alcohol prohibition actually completely mirrors what we're seeing with opioids and fentanyl right now. So in the 1920s, um, when prohibition was brought in, the, the, the drink of choice at that time in America was actually beer. So a low concentration, a low potency alcohol drink that, you know, was widely imbibed in America. With prohibition, um, beer became really hard to conceal and smuggle, right? Like you needed a lot of volume to meet people's needs and speakeasies. So people very predictably switched to a more concentrated product that they could ship smaller volumes of and therefore meet the needs of people in, in a smaller container. And so the drink of choice in America really shifted from beer to spirits like whiskey and vodka uh, and rye and and that pattern of American alcohol consumption actually you know continued in that direction so prohibition really shaped the type of alcohol that people at the time were trying to consume because it was outlawed we've seen lots of that I mean around opium and around marijuana and, and we don't have time to go into all of it but when we think about what's going on with opioids, it's the exact same issue. So a lot of the media is around um, doctors overprescribing, and certainly there's a lot of issues, particularly around OxyContin and other drugs. But what we need to remember is that people have been using opioids, opium since time immemorial, right? Um, again, in the early part of the, of the you know, 1910s, people would drink opioid tea and other things, very low potency, um, potency drugs at that time. When we're moving into, you know, the 2010 to 2013 era, when people were recognizing the impact of, of OxyContin on some folks, the reflexive reaction um, from government and policymakers was to reduce that supply. So lots of prescribing guidelines came out to physicians telling them to, you know, cut people off or significantly cut back their prescriptions. Um, government actually pulled, um, the Ontario government at least, pulled um, OxyContin from the provincial formulary in, I believe, 2013-2014. Um, and, and exactly what happened with alcohol prohibition, people didn't stop using this drug. They're dependent on this drug. They use these drugs for multiple different reasons in their life. Um, but then they no longer had what, at that time, was their safe supply, right? Right, a known dose prescribed by their physician of a pharmaceutically made drug that was clean that was pulled away from thousands of people in Canada. They didn't stop using opioids, they then just turned to the street market. So very predictably around 2015, we saw the emergence of fentanyl because, you know, the standard opium that, that people really think about is heroin. Heroin is, you know, compared to fentanyl, shipped in very large volumes, um, hard to conceal, takes a lot of work to get over borders, whereas fentanyl can, can be shipped in grams, right? Um, and, and then cut down to, to you know, tenth of gram, which, which is what people use. So exactly like the alcohol shift from beer to spirits, we saw people switch from pills to street-based fentanyl, and that was a direct action directly related to government policy about pulling the other medications. You mentioned a term that really stuck out to me and that was drug poisoning. Mm. And from your experience, did you find that the audience was more receptive to this term? Because, you know, historically we had the crack epidemic, the opioid epidemic. Um, people may not be familiar with these drugs unless they're in the healthcare field and they might mm. say, oh, you know, 
these are people who use drugs and they're using this drug and that's their problem. It doesn't affect us. But when we take that term drug poisoning, people are like, oh, what's going on here? Why are yeah. they being poisoned? Did, did you find that at all? Yeah, I think I definitely have to explain the term and where I'm going with it. So again, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep bringing it back to alcohol, right? Um, so right now, with alcohol being legal, you buy your safe dose, known concentration. You know what you're doing. You can go to a safe consumption site for alcohol, which is a bar, um, and and really imbibe in, in in your drinking the way you want to. But because opioids are illegal um, uh, for street level consumption, um, we're dependent on the black market. And so when you're thinking about fentanyl, it's not actually fentanyl that is killing people. We use fentanyl in the hospital every single day safely. It's used in emergency medicine procedures, it's used in anesthesia, it's used for pain control, and it is completely safe because it is a known purity and a known dose prescribed by a doctor. But when you have street-based fentanyl, um, people don't know what they're getting. I, I often you know, talk to my patients about it this way. I say fentanyl is like a batch of chocolate chip cookies. So if you're not mixing the batch very well, you could end up with a cookie that has two chocolate chips and a, cook a different cookie that has 20 chocolate chips. They're all coming from the same batch, um, but you don't really know which one you're gonna get. And fentanyl is like that. Um, the fentanyl is, uh, unequally distributed through a batch. So so two people could be smoking, you know, from the same batch of fentanyl, but one person is going to go down from an overdose and the other person isn't. Again, because of that variability in concentration and, and people not knowing which end of that they're going to get, right? And then along with that comes all the cutting agents that are in fentanyl. They, the average, um, you know, point of fentanyl sold on the street is only about 8% fentanyl. So it's 92% other crap, right? Um, and, and that's leading to poisonings and, you know, health yeah, complications right. as well. So, so people people are poisoned by by consuming an unknown drug, essentially. Okay, right. So the point you're making here is that um, there's the opioids, and then there's the unknown quantity mm -hmm. and concentrations, which actually causes the severe negative health outcomes that the mm -hmm. person doesn't knowingly ingest or into their body so Correct. by saying overdose it implies this person probably wanted to take a lot when they, when the intention was maybe they use the same amount of what they thought they were getting mm -hmm. but they're just essentially blindsided by um other substances as a consequences of needing to get it from uh, uncontrolled street supply compared to a medical that is a grade. Per perfect summary perfect summary and so you're completely right to think if you think of the origin of the word overdose as well you're using too much of a dose that's what an overdose is you're getting you're taking you're ingesting more than you intended to ingest and i can tell you my patients don't intend to overdose these are all unintentional drug poisoning overdoses again right. they purchase an amount they think they know what they're getting and they get something else that's drug poisoning so this is a perfect time to bring up the, the misconceptions about um, there's different types of technical terms for a general audience that might be a bit confusing, like addictions, substance use, problematic substance use. Is there a way you can easily draw a line between those that can help people conceptualize Drawing a line, probably not, because it's mm. all a spectrum and it all, you know, depends on the angle that you're looking at it from, right? Um, and so certainly when people look at my patients, they say they're addicted, right? They say they're addicted or they say they have chaotic substance use. I just say they use substances. 
okay? Some people, again, just like alcohol that's legal, will use too much alcohol and will have negative health or potential social, you know, uh, consequences of that. That's the definition of addiction, ongoing use despite consequences. The majority of people who use alcohol are not in that group. Um, the same is true of street level substances. The same is true of fentanyl. Yes, we do have a proportion who are addicted. Um, the rest of the folks use substances for various reasons in their life. Okay. Um, for example, my patients, um, at least 60% of people in safe supply are homeless. So I want you to imagine that you've been sleeping on the concrete for three years winter, fall, summer, all kinds of weather, rain, sleet, snow. Um, you don't have any shelter. You maybe sometimes have a sleeping bag or a tent. And after three years, your back really hurts. <laughs> and so you can't get a prescription from your doctor because they call you drug seeking and they judge your intentions that you. So you go to the street supply and you treat your own needs and and many other things right um heroin is called a warm hug and it's called that for a reason opioids treat not only physical pain but they treat emotional pain so again imagine you're the same person sleeping on the street for three years um you're watching the community step over you you're watching other people go into houses and have enough to eat and and you don't have any of those things and you're, you're completely isolated from the rest of the community would you want to blot that out with drugs? I think I sure would. And, and so sometimes people turn to substances for that reason. Um, and then there's a lot of trauma, right? So, so many people, you know, in the experience of homelessness or, or living on the street or, you know, experiences that, that predated that, they're again, they're trying to block it. We don't have effective therapies. They don't have access to doctors or, or you know, other professionals who could help with those things. They treat their own symptoms. So, so are people addicted? Yes. Um, are, are people who use fentanyl regularly physiologically dependent on that drug? Absolutely. But that's different from addiction. And, and I find in my practice, most people are meeting their own needs, whatever that is. And, and we can talk about how we, we make that better for them when we get to actually talking about safer supply. So that, that brings up the question. I, I, one of the things that I constantly hear you um, trying to correct is that people have a misconception that um, the, the drug use happens before the, the social exclusion the social deprivation, uh, the housing deprivation. But what you're saying is um, that's a means of coping with the emotional, physical trauma associated with maybe not having the same access to those resources as other people rather than Absolutely. the other way around. Absolutely. Absolutely. And certainly nothing is black and white in life and humanity. Um, but yes, there's, a, there's mm -hmm. this general perception in, you know, the lay population um, that people use lots of drugs or they're mentally ill or they're doing bad things. And that means they, they end up homeless. And that's where they're like, you know, to fix homelessness, we need more mental health treatment and, you know, more rehab centers when it's really ass backwards. Right. So people are homeless because they don't have enough money to rent or buy a home. Full stop. Homelessness is poverty. And, and you can argue about all the you know reasons people get to that level of poverty, but you don't have a home because you don't have enough money to have a home. And so you end up on the street. And, and just like I said, you, you undergo new physical and emotional trauma and, and your mental health starts to suffer. 
right? I mean, again, if you were sleeping on the street for three years, how depressed would you be? How anxious would you be? Would you start seeing things because you've slept right. two hours a night for three years, right? Of course you would. Um, and, and so your mental health deteriorates and, and mm -hmm. often people's substance use um, either, you know, starts or gets worse on the street for the exact same reasons that I've described. And, and one of the things that we see with the housing first component of our program is so much mental illness and substance use gets so dramatically better when people are housed. Um, again, it's not black and white, but I think we really need to reflect on, on, on the reasons that people are ill when they're living on the street and, and really stop need to, you know, needing to assume that um, their personal choices and personal failures that are leading to that. It, it, it's a systemic failure we're all involved. And one of the things I wanted to follow up on, I, I heard you on a, I think it was a CBC um, show lately, and you mentioned that, um, so we have opioids, and then you also mentioned crystal meth um, is often used for people who are maybe housing deprived, uh, living 100%. on the streets, mm -hmm. uh, a little bit scared to sleep. So we don't think of um, people um, using substances as a way to cope necessarily. Um, while they're living in, in housing precarity but you're you're you make a great point that actually this brings someone further down the rabbit hole of needing to use uh even more to be able to just cope with the daily realities of being absolutely out on the street. And, and i i and i know which interview you're referring to and, and i think i mentioned it even in the context of women mm -hmm. right so if you're a woman who is homeless again you're mm -hmm. living on the street maybe you're living in a tent maybe you're living in a group maybe you're living solo it can be really dangerous for you to fall asleep in that environment. You're prone to theft, physical, sexual assault. And so you use crystal meth because it keeps you awake for two or three days and keeps you safer from those things. Um, and, and obviously there's implications both from the crystal meth use and, you know, from being awake for those long periods. Um, but I think, we, again, yeah, we're reflecting back on what is actually the need that's being met. And then again, you're sleeping two hours a night because the concrete is uncomfortable and it rained all night. Crystal meth can, is often used like a coffee for my patients. They may have a little toke, a little puff in the morning, and it, and it wakes them up just like the espresso I make at home. And, and that can be a mechanism of use. And then again, at the, at the far end of the line, sometimes people are just so distressed by the way they have to live that they don't want to be part of it. And so they blot out and they use drugs and then they, they seek euphoria and being high for that reason. Again, I, I don't think we have a moral leg to stand on by criticizing people for doing that and, until we actually have, you know, a Canadian society that supports the basic human rights of everybody who lives here. Absolutely. And I wanted to follow up with that because we talked a lot about, you know, this existing con condition that they have to face every day of their life 24 seven. Mm -hmm. And now with the elephant in the room of what we've all been dealing with for the past 16 months with COVID-19, in your experience, how has this worsened the situation? Um, so it's worsened it, but it's also, it's also exposed the gaps in society, right? Um, so yeah. COVID has been hard on everybody, but again, Imagine you have nowhere to go home to and all of the services have shut down. So, so in March 2020, when, when we started to enter that period of lockdown, 
basic program shut down for my patients. So hygiene programs, nobody could have a shower for six weeks because everything was closed. There were no bathrooms. People had to, you know, do their business number one and number two in, you know, in the forest, in the bushes, because there were no bathrooms that were open. Meal programs reduced because a lot of our meal programs are actually staffed by elderly folks um, who are told to isolate for the risk of COVID. And, and so people who are normally able to maybe find two hot meals a day through various, now we're down to one if they're lucky and it's a sandwich that you eat on the street right so again put yourself in that situation how would that feel again we've all suffered but it's so much worse when you're on the street and again it exposed a lot of inequities um, because my folks were the only people who were out and about so suddenly people are, are seeing these usually invisible humans but but without the other humans around them they're they're more obvious and it, and it also just exposed the the massive um, lack of housing that we have in almost every Canadian community um, if you're told to self-isolate, and you don't have a home, what like what would you do, right? We have no options for these folks. Right, and moving forward, you know, a lot of people have been laid off due to the, to, due to the pandemic. They might have lost their homes as well. So this, this crisis gets even worse coming out of this, right? And then yes. if we have services and resources that haven't been established or have been reprioritized to COVID-19, it seems like it's just adding more Kindle to the fire. Absolutely, yes. So in theory, um, we would expect that um, the situation, there's more of a strain on our society because you, you mentioned the gaps have been exposed. So mm -hmm. th has this translated to an actual increase in uh, the number of, or the rate of drug poisonings or toxicities? Yes. So it's, it's hard to know what is causation and correlation, but we certainly mm -hmm. know the mm -hmm. trends that run together. And, and at the beginning, you know, Comparing 2019 to the 2020 rates of overdose, we saw a 60% increase, and that was consistent across Ontario. Um, the reasons for that are complicated, again. Um, there's a lot of despair, there's a lot of people trying to cope, so therefore there's more drug use, there's higher volumes of drug use, that can lead to more drug poisonings. But then if we think again about the services that folks need, our safe consumption facilities, because of, you know, very important distancing rules, could see less people. So you might have had a safer consumption site that had five booths for people to use in that could have five patients at the same time. Now, because they have to use six feet apart, they have three booths. So no longer can as many people be moved through that service to safely consume their drugs. Also with the advice of self-isolation, right? You, you have a lot of, of hidden homeless folks who were maybe crashing on somebody's couch, right? And that's called couch surfing. People didn't want to do that anymore, right? They, they wanted to self-isolate if, if they had a home. And so, so a lot of these folks who were, were couch surfing were now out on the street and you know had their, their use and, and their potential overdose rate impacted by that. And then there was also something that emerged out of COVID um, in that most, um, many cities across Ontario at least, um, instituted policies um, called COVID hotels. And so because shelter space was rationed and socially distanced, the federal government did provide money to, to put folks who are living with homelessness in hotel rooms for the purpose of self-isolation. And that's wonderful because they have a roof over their head and it's complicated and that's probably a whole nother podcast. Um, but also you take people who, who are using drugs 
in groups and communities in order to stay safe. Um, in order to, you know, intervene if their friend has an overdose. And now you, you're getting city policies that say one person per room and no guests. And so people who would usually use collectively and, and receive naloxone from their peers are now using in isolation by themselves in a hotel room with nobody to respond to them if they go down. And certainly I know of many folks like that who, who had, you know, more or less safely used substances in either a shelter or street street level capacity who, who were put singularly into a room and overdosed very shortly thereafter and died. You've just heard part one of Gordon and Ben's conversation with Dr. Andrea Sarida about the genesis of the drug poisoning crisis, its similarity to the alcohol prohibition period, some reasons people use opioids and other substances, and COVID-19's impact on harm reduction services. Join us in the next episode as Dr. Sarida shares her experience as the lead physician practicing street outreach medicine for the London Intercommunity Health Center Safe Opioid Supply Program, which is currently the longest running of its kind in Canada. Thank you for listening to the Public Health Insight Podcast, your go-to space for informative conversations inspiring community action. If you enjoy our content and would like to stay up to date, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. To learn more about our community initiatives and how you can support us, visit our website at thepublichealthinsight.com. Join the PHI community and let's make public health viral.